take up all day. But I do have something I feel like the Lord placed in my heart today, and I'd like to share that with you as the Lord would allow. And I want to start with a scripture here. I want to go to Psalms chapter 139, Psalms 139, and I'm going to be reading this morning uh, from the ESV. ESV has become one of my new favorite translations, if I could say it that way. And I know maybe some of you have your preferences or maybe your uh, choices about different ones. I just right now, ESV, I've been using that quite a bit um, in some study I've been doing. And so I'll be reading out of the ESV today. 139 verse 13 says this, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame is not hidden from you. When I was being, when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And then if you jump over, if you have your Bible and you want to join with me, Ephesians chapter 2, uh, and I'm going to read this out of the New Living Translation, but I'm going to be reading the first 10 verses out of the New Living Translation, again, this time out of the NLT. So if you're like, what are we in now? We're going to switch to the NLT. I'm going to keep you on your toes today. Verse number one of the NLT, Ephesians chapter two says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. The King James says, those who were dead, your trespasses and sin. Notice that word there. and You're going to hear this later down the road. That's why I'm emphasizing it. You were dead. You were dead. You were dead. It wasn't a, it wasn't a fact of this. It was a simple statement. You were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You were, you were, used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. But our very nature, we were subject, by our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But then verse four, I love how there's, a, there's always a man's side, and then there's God's side. And so we heard man's side. It was bad. We were dead. Though Satan was working and he was winning and our nature was producing God's wrath. But verse four, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave his life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of incredible wealth of his grace. I love that. The incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ. God saved you. By his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. I got to stop right there. I'm not going there today. But we got to go back and read that one more time. And hear what's saying. What Paul's saying. And I love sometimes reading it in a different translation like the NLT. Because sometimes in the KJV it's a little. Uh, I call it peanut butter-ish. You know you're trying to. You ever eaten peanut butter straight off the spoon? It tastes good but. Mm. it's a little difficult to get through. So it's a little different sometimes with some KJV language or some other more traditional language of the scripture because we miss some, maybe just some simple contextual straight at you type verbiage. So sometimes I like reading it like an NLT or some of the other modern English. The MEV is another one. It's got MEV is the modern English version. So the NLT which is New Living Translation, the MEV, which is the Modern English Version. Those are two really, really good uh, versions for more just natural flow of our English language in the 21st century. You could use the Message Bible, but sometimes, to be frank with you, Eugene Peterson, who's the one who wrote the uh, Message Bible, he's a little, he's a little 
too liberal sometimes, in my opinion, in his interpretation. But again, don't say, I'm not saying don't read it. I think it has merit. I'm saying all that because I love sometimes reading scripture in a more natural language for us today because we the, the meaning just kind of hits you. In this verse right here especially, verse 8, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Now, ready. Verse 9. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. Let's get that established. I love that. Now, the King James Version says that a little different. But this New Living Translation just gives it to you straight. I love it because it's really to the heart of the matter. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. So... It's amazing to me how many, and this is not where I'm going today, but it's just too good to pass up. It's amazing how many of us today still think that we can do enough good to outweigh our bad. And that somehow God is looking down at your good and going, oh, that was good, check, that was good, check, that was good, check. Oh, you had three check marks today and only one negative mark. Three to one, you win. Because honestly, there's some days I might have three to one. There's another time, Dave, it's 50 to one the other way. I got one good thing and 50 other negative things. Most of the days it feels like that, honestly, for me. Uh, for some of you, you might not be quite, but pray for the rest of us. There's nothing you can do, literally nothing. Paul saying this to the church of Ephesus, and he is kind of giving them some awesome dynamic things about God. But in the middle of that, he says salvation is... Salvation is not something you can earn by your good works. So you can't take credit for this. There's nothing you can do to take credit for any of this. And then here's the verse I wanted to get to, verse number 10. For we are God's masterpiece. He was created, he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do good things he planned for us long ago. We are God's masterpiece. I love that phrase, we are God's masterpiece and David said in 139 of Psalms, you have formed me in the inward parts, knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame is not hidden from you when I was made, being made in secret, intrinsically woven in the depths of the earth. I came across, um, beginning this week, I think it was somewhere along the line. I don't know how I even found it. But I came across uh, across an article, and um, it was discussing rare finds in thrift stores and garage sales. Now, it's Mother's Day, and I know a lot of you ladies out there know how to work a sale. It's like a special scent. It's like bloodhounds can sense, smell, women can smell a sale from a mile away. So... Some of you are bargain hunter, hunter galores. I mean, it's hilarious. You go to a men's store and then you go to a women's store. The men's store has a little selection. The women's store, it's miles and miles of racks. And a lot of you women take enjoyment just going through the racks one, one by one, one by one, finding that rare needle in the haystack so you can say, wow, look at the deal I have. Look at the deal I got. When I came across this article... And I found it would be I found it to be unique because it tells the story of a perfectly normal looking white bowl. This is it. This is actually the bowl. To me and you, with our untrained eye, this bowl looks like something you would see at any store, whether it be Target, whether it be Walmart, whether it be Home Goods or Hobby Lobby or at home or whichever store is of your choosing if you look at this poll i don't know if you could tell from that picture anything that would jump out to you it looks very normal in fact for maybe some of you if you saw and i don't know the size of that um but maybe it would be used for chips maybe you could put m&ms in that whatever it might be it doesn't seem like by its just normal appearance that it holds anything of great value. And that's exactly how most people viewed this bowl. Because sometime in the mid uh, early 2000s, a family was doing their typical yard sale Saturday. 
and they came across this they came across this bowl and in their negotiations they ended up paying $3 for this bowl they took it home and placed it somewhere in their house and for i believe i remember this correctly 6 years it sat on the shelf it was a $3 bowl that was bought at a yard sale that sat on a shelf for six years. They passed by it every day, and maybe those that came over their house that were their, that were their guests, they passed by it as well. And nobody ever asked, why is that there? Nobody said, wow, what a bowl. This is an amazing bowl. I don't know the story that I found didn't explain this. Maybe there's another article out there that would give the fullness of the story. But somehow, some way, they decided maybe we should get this bowl checked out or maybe it was suggested or somehow, some way, this was suggested that this bowl may need further investigation. I don't know what that part of the story, that part of the story is left out. When they began to discover this bowl, the, the, the family was absolutely shocked because this seemingly... Um, benign white ceramic bowl that you could probably find in any store in any place in America that sells home goods that they had purchased for $3 at a yard sale and it sat on their shelf for six years. When they began to do research about this bowl, they discovered, drum roll please, that this bowl was an ancient Chinese bowl that had dated back thousands of years that this bowl had a long 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 history how it ended up at a yard sale in new york i don't know the story doesn't say but this family was holding something that had come from thousands of years and thousands of miles away the initial estimate on the bowl came out to be about $300,000. And so the family decided to capitalize on their newfound discovery and to put it into auction. By the time the auction was finished and the final bid was given and the hammer was slammed to, or the gavel was slammed to call the auction to a stop, the value of the bowl at auction sold for $2.2 million. I did not stutter. I had to read it twice to make sure I was right. $2.2 million for this bowl. I'll put it back up there so you can see it. Now, come on, folks. Let's be frank. Is anybody wanting to pay $2.2 million for this bowl? Any of you want to pay $2.2 million? I thought $3 sounded about right. It looks like about the size of a cereal bowl to me. It may be bigger. I don't know. Looks like a bowl. We have a bowl similar shape to that in our um, in in our uh, our our house right now. In fact, actually, this is the beauty about being live. Can you get me one of our white bowls? Our white the one cereal bowl. My, my lovely assistant is going to help me because I want to. This is about the size, but this is the point I'm making. Three dollars. They paid three dollars for that bowl because that was what. The value that bowl had to them. It was sold at auction after sitting on their shelf for 2.2. It's all it's it's actually kind of hard to even say that. 2.2 million dollars. That is staggering, right? And all of us now are gonna go, let's go out and yard sale next Saturday, because we can find that. Unfortunately, I have a hard time believing that somewhere in Odington, somebody has a Chinese bowl sitting on their table that's sold for $3. Obviously, this is a very rare story. Uh, it's like the guy in Tennessee that bought whatever he bought and ended up having the Declaration of Independence. He bought the Declaration of Independence out of a, out of a bowl. Thank you. He bought the Declaration of Independence out of a, out of a bin that had a lot of different um, um, documents. It was in such good shape that the people that sold it thought it was a replica. I think he paid $2.80 or something like this. Come to find out, it happened to be one of the only, like one of 
30 something copies of the original 200 that were commissioned by I think John Hancock I think my 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 history is a little fuzzy today had commissioned 200 declaration of independences to be written this was one of those original 200 and only like 30 something had been discovered and this was found in a bin of documents in Tennessee and he paid $2.80 but I got a bowl thank you my wife helped me here this morning uh I've got a bowl. Now, if you look at my bowl, and I'm going to put this bowl back up here for a second. Look at that bowl. Honestly, come on. You can't really tell me if you think my bowl is of any less value than that bowl. It looks about the same size. We use this for ice cream, for cereal, for food, anything, right? And I imagine, I don't even know. Oh, come on. This is even better. I don't know if you can see this. This is from that high-end store called Ikea. I don't even know if we paid $3 for this. It was in a set, my wife said. So I'm going to guess the value of this bowl from Ikea in a set. $16 for a set. A four. $16 for a set of four. And that was plates. Plates. I mean, everything. So this bowl, it was $16 for a set of four. And it was plates and bowls and all that. This is maybe an Ikea, a dollar something, if you break down the math. I mean, you can go buy a whole house in Ikea for like a hundred bucks. Literally. I mean, it, this, if you've ever been to Ikea, seriously, you better, you, you've got to set a budget limit when you go to Ikea because you can end up walking out of there with like, hey, uh, hey, this is good. Don't knock, my wife said, don't knock Ikea. It works. Those, those Swedish people know how to make a bowl. But this was... Not very valuable, and we bought it. But if you look at this bowl, this bowl and that bowl look exactly the same. But that bowl was valued at $300,000 and sold for $2.2 million. I read that. And when I was reading that story, even though I was sort of fascinated by the by the dynamics of this story that that something of that immense value, A, number one, ends up on somebody's table at a yard sale in New York. It had lasted, first of all, that long through thousands of years coming back from one of the early Chinese dynasties. And then the people that bought it didn't even understand its value and it sat on a shelf for six years. And it really began to hit me. I believe the Lord began to talk to me about it. Is that sometimes when we only judge by certain criteria, we don't really understand the value of something. When we see only through a certain lens or we only see through one perspective we don't really understand the true value of something because you know what? From my perspective as an untrained eye, my bowl and that bowl look exactly the same in their quality and in their, um, in their value. That bowl doesn't look like it would be much worth. It's got a little bit of extra design on it on the side there. A little bit more. It's got the little triangle pattern that goes around or not triangle pattern just sort of the uh yeah triangle pattern because you call it it goes up and down and around but some of you may like the smoothness of this bowl better it'd be like more of a sleek modern design and not one that has angles on it but for you and i they don't look any different they look the same because to us we don't see the value of it but why is that bowl a million, you know, two two point two million times more valuable than this bowl? This bowl's—I don't even know if you can sell it for a dollar at an auction at a yard sale. This is like one of those five cent finds at a yard sale. So this bowl may be worth a dollar. That bowl was worth two point two million dollars. Why? They look the same. 
But in reality, the value of something goes far beyond what you can see. The value of something goes far beyond what you and your perspective and the lens by which you look at something values. Because you see, there's always a lens by which we look at everything. We value things. If I walked in your house, there may be certain things in your house that you treasure and value that I might go, why is that there? But you know what? If you came in my house, you'd probably say the same thing. In fact, we were just talking about this the other day with our with our with our kids. My, uh, we we're talking about this. With my daughter, my wife, she's not she, she's not a. Um, my wife is 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 a minimalist at heart, and how she she doesn't like to have she doesn't like to keep a lot of stuff. She really is a minimalist, and how she approaches just her and, and the things that she has, except one area. And in this area, she's not a minimalist. She is a collector. I'll put it kindly. That's a nice way of saying it. If you went down to our storage room right now, you wouldn't find a lot of stuff. But you would find literally, I would say, in the neighborhood of, oh, conservatively, 15 bins. And I'm not talking about bins. Like I'm talking about the, you know, the, the ones, I don't know if you can... If there's perspective on this screen, you know, bins like storage bins that you can get at Walmart, probably at least 15 of them filled, filled with scrap paper, little trinkets, all of this, that the collective value of those 15 bins is probably just the value of the bin. If someone walked in this house to steal anything out of this house, they would walk down in there, open up that door to the storage room, look in there and go, there is nothing but junk in here. They move on to something else. Because to them, the value that they see, it holds no value. It holds nothing. It To them... It just looks like 15 bins full of construction paper, scrap paper, failed art projects, and whatever else. But of everything in this house, if you ask my wife, she's right here, and if I could interview her for a moment, and I ask her, what is the most valuable possessions you have in this house? It wouldn't be anything electronic it wouldn't be anything clothes shoes whatever it might be wouldn't be any collectibles wouldn't be any thing that you would draw your attention to she would go i honestly if i lost everything in this house it wouldn't bother me if i could save those 15 bins because to her those 15 bins hold a priceless value. To me, in fact, I have some here. Hold on, just as you pause one second. To me, it's a bin full of a lot of this. And literally, I'm not joking. There's a there's something down there if I can find something here to. This is the beauty. I love this. This is the beauty of teaching from your home because you have uh, a lot of things at your disposal. One second here. Hold on. This is worth the uh, worth the wait. There is literally. I'll use this. This, is a, this will be a good enough. There is this is not. A, uh, there is literally a paper somewhere in one of those bins that's not much different than this. She's right here. I can verify. Am I correct? It's not much different than that. And she's verifying that. Literally in there, there is a piece of paper somewhere in one of those bins. Maybe we'll find it one day and we can prove to you that it's not much different than this. It is literally a line. Huh? And she's crying over here because she's, she's reminiscing about it. You and I saw that on the table, we would pick it up, throw it away. 
It may be one of her most prized possessions in this house. If she could frame it, if my wife ever started an art gallery, she would frame this and to be one of the first pictures you see in her art gallery. Because you know why? The picture that's in those bins that look pretty close to this, somewhere like this, it's been a while since I've seen it, it was my son's first drawing. I don't know how old was he. It was his first. It wasn't too long until he, uh, after he had just learned how to hold a crayon. And it wasn't like, you know, properly hold it. Just grab it. And he drew this and he gave it to my wife. And literally, it's in a bin somewhere. And it looks, I mean, literally, I'm not trying to be dramatic here. It's not any different than this. It's not a Picasso. It's not a. It's not the Mona Lisa. It's not a. You know, a, 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 any other great work of art. Even though I guess if it's a Picasso, it wouldn't much be different than this. Picasso looks like he, you know, child drew it. But it's not anything that you would go, wow, look at that artwork. It's a line on a piece of paper, but to her, it's priceless. Why? Because the value by which she sees. In this paper. You see, I look at this paper and I go, eh, you look at this paper and go, what? Can we throw that away? It's trash. It's no good. My wife holds that paper. Literally, just a second ago when I asked her, she started tearing up. Because she was remembering the day that he handed it to her and said, Mom, look, I drew this. The value of that. I could go right now to your house and all of you mothers, it's Mother's Day. I could go to your mother, all of you mothers, and I could find little things that your children did when you were young that looked to me like a failed art project. But to you as moms, they're priceless. Why? Because the framework and the perspective that you're giving value to something is completely different than I am. You see... There are two value systems in this world. There's how we see things and how God sees things. And the way we see things is filtered through our surroundings, our culture, the value system by which we're associated with. So the culture by which you're connected to and the Surroundings you are, we're going to value different things. We're going to put different values on it. For some cultures, cars and clothes and possessions speak. For other cultures, an education is something. For some cultures, it might be a house. For some cultures, it might be a job or a career or success. Depending on what culture you're a part of, there's different value. And so for some cultures, if you drive a fancy car, it's not a big deal. What do you do for a living? In some cultures, it's not what you do for a living. It's what's your education, how many degrees you have behind your name. And so whatever place, you're, whatever you're associated with today is going to drive who you are and how you see yourself. And so some of you today, you feel like failures, not because you're a failure, but you feel like a failure because you have, you have listened to or you have based your success off of a preconceived, flawed, I'm going to call it that way, flawed definition of value. And so today you may be you may feel worthless because you don't drive a nice enough car. You might not feel you might feel worthless today because your clothes aren't quite the name brand that associates you with success. You might not feel as successful today because your job is seemingly on lower on the totem pole. You're not a CEO. You're not the boss. You don't work at some Fortune 500 company. You may work as just a at just a normal clerk. So to you, it doesn't hold much value because our system says this. Some of you have a high school education. Some of you didn't finish high school. Some of you don't even have a GED. And because of our society and the way we prioritize information and learning and education, you feel like a failure because you don't have these things. And then when you add on top of that, not only does that drive our value, but you add on top of that hurt shame, voices of our past, whether the voices of a father, the voices of a mother, the voices of an aunt, an uncle, a teacher, a coach that declared to you your worthlessness. 
You'll never be anything. You're no good. You'll never amount to anything. So to you, you hold no value. To you, you are just a line that should be crumpled up and thrown away. Because why do I, who am I? What value do I have? You're just a $3 bowl stuck on a shelf. People see you, but to them, you're no different than the other Ikea bowls that fill shelves. Because honestly, if this bowl broke today, we'd sweep it up, throw it away. There wouldn't be one tear in this house. And what's sad is that six, that $3 bowl that they bought on yard sale, if someone would have broken that bowl, there'd been no tears. Because to them, it was just a yard sale bowl. Now, once they found out the value of it, I guarantee you they put that thing in, you know, bubble wrap, lock and key, retina scan, fingerprint, voice recognition, everything. I mean, they probably did everything. Because when the value changes, how you treat it changes. When how you value something changes, we can say how you value yourself the way you treat yourself. But in reality, I started with this and I'll finish with this. David writes in Psalms 139, again I read it. You are formed in the inward parts, knitted together. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was... Being made in secret. There's the phrase. I'm going to get to that in just a second. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet they were none. There was none of them. What is David really talking about? Why did David feel necessary to write this? Well, you've heard me talk about this before. I finish with this. You have to know a little bit about David's background. Most of our understanding of David is the fact that David killed Goliath. David became the most revered king in all of Israel. Then David became the throne by which Jesus Christ sits on the throne of David. So from that perspective, we know David. But David gives us some clues along the way of how he felt about himself. He said, I was born in iniquity. Shaping in sin. He talks about some stuff that was, he, he discusses some things that give us some insight to some stuff he's dealing with internally. And I can't, I don't have time to go through all of his, all the things and insights he gives us. But then on top of that, He's sort of the outcast because he of any of his family is the one that is out tending his father's sheep. Now, at first glance, it goes, well, that was a pretty high, a pretty, uh, pretty important position. Actually, in some ways, no, because at the wealth of David's father, Jesse, he should have had servants that were tending the flock. David should have been in the house learning the family business. But David was the youngest of his brothers, and there were some things about David's past that they send David, Jesse sends David out to tend the flock in a dangerous place to the point that this place had lions and bears that David had to fend off with a sling. So to me, when I read that, it's kind of hard for me to buy that Jesse's sincerity when you send your young son, who probably at the age that David was, was somewhere around 12 years old when he would probably have gone out to the flock, and you send him out there knowing that it's a dangerous situation, knowing that there are wild animals there that could tear a young boy apart, and the only protection you give him is a sling, which is kind of like saying, hey, at least I you know, can sleep at night that if you get killed, you had something, it was your fault, you didn't protect yourself. Now, the sling, when properly used and given a properly, uh, properly taught technique, 
had the stopping power of a 45 caliber bullet. So I will tell you, the sling that we're talking about is not a little pea shooter that you got from uh, the hobby store. This was a very lethal weapon, but you're giving it to a boy that is untrained. So it's like giving your child a gun, telling them to go outside, and at least if they die, you say, well, they had a gun. It's not my problem. They, they, they didn't stop the, the animal. They should have learned how to shoot. I think that's kind of like what I'm getting from Jesse sending David out. But why did he do all that? Well, the story is this. Jesse's lineage was not pure Israel, not pure Jew. Jesse had some Moabite. I don't have time to go in that, but Jesse's family tree had Moabite blood mixed in with him. So Jesse had Jew and Gentile blood. Jesse was a member of the Sanhedrin. This is sort of the Supreme Court of Israel. This is the, these guys were the highest law in the land. And so because of the prestige of his position, somewhere along the line, someone, either someone got in his ear or he got in somewhere, maybe sitting down interpreting a law, started to question the legitimacy of his sons because he married a woman who was a Jew. And because he had mixed blood and she was Jewish blood, his blood was not pure. It wasn't pure Jew, it wasn't pure Gentile. And so he began to question his, his own self-worth, his own heir. And for a male in that period of time, having a, um, a male heir was everything. Not just from the standpoint you wanted a boy, but that male heir could carry on your legacy, your name, your business, everything. So he began to struggle. So the story is, is that he went to his wife, I believe, if I can remember correctly, Nitzevit is her name, and basically explained the story to her. And 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 crafted a plan to sleep with one of his maidservants who was pure Moabite blood. Well, when the maidservant found out the plan, she went to Nitzevit and told her she was not comfortable with this. And so these two women plotted an ulterior plan without telling Jesse. And so when Jesse went to lie with the maidservant to produce a pure Moabite heir, the two women tricked him and switched places. And in his thoughts of, in his, his action to carry an heir with this Moabite woman, he actually ended up sleeping with his real wife. Well, in that process, she became pregnant. The problem was, is, was her desire to, to, to save her husband of the shame of his actions. She kept her conception a secret. So when she began to be discovered, she was pregnant and therefore was confronted it appeared to everyone that she had been impregnated by another man, not Jesse. Obviously, you can imagine what this would have caused among her family, the circles of her society. And so when this boy was born, this boy we know as David was born with the stigma of being illegitimate. It's funny and I know some of you may, well, I don't buy the story because it's not in the Bible. And there is some caution to that, obviously. But there's enough clues in Scripture where David talks about himself to know that he, his birth wasn't normal. And what's amazing about it is that he was born with the stigma of illegitimacy. Guess who else was born with the stigma of illegitimacy? You guessed it. Jesus. So I find it unique that they both had the same origin story. David was born with the stigma of iniquity. And so because of that, he was treated with no value. In fact, his own brothers despised him because 
his mother had shamed their father. Ancient societies and even some of the societies today for me, the Eastern world, are called what you call honor and shame societies. They don't have the same value structures we do, honor and shame. Honor and shame to the family, and the family name is, is the highest level of value. And so to shame the family name was was absolutely the worst thing you could do. And so because of Nitzavit's action and David's birth, it brought the greatest amount of shame to the family. So his brothers hated him. His dad didn't like him. And his dad, in order to try to protect David's mother, let the boy live, but then treated him as, he was, as if he was not really his son. In fact, when the prophet shows up to the house and he anoints the, or looks at the first... Um, first six sons and says, neither none of this. And, and, and he looks at Jesse and says, you have another son. And Jesse reluctantly says, well, I mean, I've got, got one more, but I don't, he's not really my son. I mean, you know, that was kind of his attitude, right? He's, he's, he's out tending the flock, you know? And when they brought him in, I can't imagine the shock to everybody when Samuel said, well, this is the guy. They're probably like, okay, yeah, you just lost your mind. But this is what David dealt with his entire life. And so when he sits down and he writes these words, For you formed me in my inward parts, knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. When he's writing these words, this is a young man trying to come to grips with his value. Because everybody told him he was just another Ikea bowl. But he began to discover that in the eyes of God, his value was priceless. You see, today, I can tell you and I can show you scripture that says how God feels about you, and to God, you're priceless. But for most of you, those are words. They hold no true meaning because to you, you feel worthless because you've been told you're worthless. You were born feeling worthless. You've lived worthless. Society tells you you're worthless. And so for you, you have no worth. But can I tell you today, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, you are his masterpiece. How think about that. God created the heavens and the earth, the stars, the moons, the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, the animals that roam the land. God created all of those with just simply his words. He spoke those things in existence. He created the mountain peaks that stand so majestic. We stand in awe of the Grand Canyon. You look and you stand on the rim of the Grand Canyon, you look at it with awe and to know that God carved that with his mere finger. Stand on the shore of a beach and look across the vastness of an ocean to know that God created that. You look and you watch birds soar and almost defy gravity and you look at that or you stood and you watch different animals in their, in their majesty and their majestic nature. And you look at everything and you stand and see the beauty of a flower that blossoms in spring. Stood out on a beautiful summer day and just looked at the beauty that you're surrounded with. Sometimes just even sitting here in our house and looking in our woods behind us, which not anything great to look at, but you're just amazed at just looking at the woods, the entire world that's behind us from the small little birds that fly among the trees to the little small animals that scurry along the ground to the owl that sits in a tree. We found a woodpecker the other day. We're sitting at our table and you and you saw it and my wife's like, look, it's a woodpecker. And we got to watch this 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 bird. This unique bird. It was amazing to sit there and see him. My wife got a bird feeder. We used to sit out there and watch these birds land and the different birds and the variety of birds and the beauty of these birds and the color of these birds and look at all that to know that God created all of that but then when it came down to what he declared to be his masterpiece he said you and I are his masterpiece I know for some of you today you don't feel like a masterpiece you feel like a mistake you feel like 
something that should be thrown away, erased. You feel like this. You feel like a drawing with just a line. No good, no value. But you see, the same could have been said about David. We all go, man, David and Goliath. David is David, David, the king, the great king David. David was born feeling worthless. But some long line, he realized the value of who he was. You see, the world's never going to tell you your true value. To the world, they're going to judge you because you look like a $3 yard sale item stuck on a shelf. If you're expecting the world to give you value, you're expecting our world to give you value, if you're expecting somebody in your life to give you value, they'll never be able to truly give you value. The only true value you can ever have is the value of Jesus Christ to know how he feels about you. I know hurt and shame and pain today says this can't be true. Your hurt and your shame and your pain tells you of who you really value is. Some of you mothers struggle because of the value and the worthlessness that you feel from your mother or your father. And so because of that, you've carried that into your own kids and they feel and they struggle and you then you beat yourself up. But all of this can be fixed by number one, allowing God to heal our hearts, allowing God to mend our lives because it's only through his grace and his mercy and his healing that he can begin to show you our true value. Because today you don't see it. And I can't do enough to show it to you. There's not enough scripture in this Bible to convince you of that. Because you look to the framework of hurt. And you look to the framework of pain. And you look to the framework of your circumstances and your past. But you see God doesn't value based off of all that. He values you based off simply who you are. And you are his masterpiece. You're his masterpiece. Fearfully and wonderfully. fearfully and wonderfully made. So today you may feel like a 50 cent Ikea bowl. You may feel like a line on a paper. But today you're God's masterpiece. And before you argue with me, say, well, that sounds great. All of you mothers, go find your child's art projects you've stuck in a drawer somewhere. Pick out the first Mother Day card that your little one gave you. Tell me if you think that's just a piece of trash. Tell me if you think, if you, if any of you can look at something and see the value of it, even though everybody else doesn't think it's worth anything, then you should be all understand. If you being evil know how to give good gifts, how much more does your heavenly father? If you who are human, who have only a small capacity to love, who have only a small capacity to forgive. If you can look at a piece of paper with a line and go, it's a masterpiece, you should understand how much more than the one who gave his entire life to you, shed his blood for you, looks at you, and you may feel like a line, but he calls you a masterpiece. So before you just argue away and you just think I'm just giving you pie in the sky, we do this every day with items in our house, in our lives. There are certain keepsakes and mementos that we hold on to that look like trash, but for us they're priceless. But somehow we have a problem believing that God sees us as a masterpiece that seems too good to be true. And you know what? Go to your collect. Go to your treasure, your memory box and throw it away today because you know what it's trash it's no good i'd offend you if i told you if i came to your house right now say you know where's your memory box oh here it is well, let's throw it away why it's trash it's just a bunch of old stuff papers who wants this you'd be you would kick me out of your house you would you would literally despise me for 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 absolutely disrespecting you and your stuff that way but yet it's okay for you to believe you're worthless today because, you know, nice try, preacher. Nice try, Brother Joel. That was nice, but it's not true. Okay, then you're a hypocrite. If that's really the way you, you believe, honestly, can you imagine God's frustration when you value a paper with a line 
but he can't convince you how much he, being your heavenly father, values you. That's too good to, that's too hard to believe. Come on, folks, be honest with us, ourselves. We're human. We have such a small capacity to understand this stuff. He's God of heaven and earth. I think if anybody can understand the value of something, it's the one who made it. He doesn't see flaw. He sees flawless. Nothing he's ever made was a mistake. I don't care if you were born in illegitimacy. I don't care if you were born while a crime was being committed. I'm trying to be coy here with young kids watching. I don't care if you were born out of a crime being committed. I don't care how you came in this world. You're not a mistake. You're not an accident. I don't care if your mom didn't want you. Your dad didn't want you. Jesus wants you. You say, well, that's a little hard to believe, preacher. Really? It's a, it's a line on a piece of paper. But to that woman sitting right here on the side of this, on the, on the side of this camera, it's priceless. Father, I thank you today. Lord, I know you've put this in my heart. But there's absolutely no way by my simple words in delivering this that it can bring any life. But I know your word is life. Father, we're trying to raise the dead today. We can't raise the dead through words. You said that we're resurrected because we're quickened in our spirit because of the power of your spirit. So Father, today, more than just my words, because I believe those words came from you, I'm praying, God, that your spirit would quicken our hearts. I bind every lie of the adversary. I bind every voice of shame and hurt and doubt. I curse it in Jesus' name. And on this Mother's Day, I pray, God, that you would show every mother her value, how you see it. And every child the value of who they are. And every person that's watching that would see your value because how you value us. I bind every voice of shame and hurt. I bind every voice of their past. I bind every voice of this world and the system of this world that says who we should be and how we should value ourselves. And I speak, Father, in the name of Jesus, that you would reveal to us today how you see us, how you view us, that you would reveal to us today our true worth that only comes by you. You loved us enough that we were yet sinners. You died for us. You valued us when we weren't even worth being valued. You still valued enough us enough that you were willing to pay the highest price you could pay because you valued us enough even though we were just a bull sitting on a yard sale bench for three bucks. You said that we were worth your life even though most just passed us by because we were just three dollars. Pray today, Father, that you would reveal to us who you who we are. Who, how you see us, that we would, our, the scales of deception and blindness would be removed off our eyes and we would see who you are. In the name of Jesus, we pray all these things. In Jesus' name, I thank you today, Father. I thank you for today, in Jesus' name. God bless you. I'm so thankful for you joining us today. Uh, for all of our mothers out there, happy, happy Mother's Day. I mean that sincerely. And I pray that you have a blessed and wonderful day. And stay tuned for those of you that are part of Antioch West for all the information regarding next week's in-person gathering. We'll get that to you as soon as we're able to. God bless you. We love you. Have a wonderful Mother's Day. On behalf of my wife and I, uh, today we say Happy Mother's Day to all of the mothers of Antioch West. God bless you.